0: Democrat Laura Curran, the first woman elected county executive on Long Island, breaking a glass ceiling and vowing to break with the past. Laura Curran joining us live.
1: It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. Entertaining and informative. Thought provoking conversations that get right to the point.
0: Observers say her future is bright. We're here to tell us more about it, Laura Curran.
1: Now, here's Laura
2: Curran.
0: She dances across the porch as the radio plays. Hello, everyone. A nice, uh, melancholy Bruce Springsteen song on this gray, gray day. And the reason I'm playing this song is because my first guest, who we're going to get to in a second, his name is Ken Lovett. Uh, He's a bit of a Kremlinologist, you could say, when it comes to Albany. He's covered state politics for 25 years. He's a consultant now And we're going to get the latest dish from him on the Albany budget situation in a minute. Then we talk to Tom Kenneth, who in the metaverse is the Republican DA in Manhattan, somewhere out there in some reality, but not in this one. But we want to talk to him about the latest news here in New York City. And then I want to talk to you and to my third guest about the challenges of being social and young and sober in our culture right now. It's not it's not easy uh, and we talked to someone who uh, has come up with some solutions and some advice and some really hard times as well. But first, I want to talk about cliches. So I've, I've had this lifelong aversion to cliches, but I do find myself using them sometimes. And the reason I'm thinking about this today is because if you read the New York Times today on the back page of the opinions section – the Sunday paper. Uh, there's just a huge block of just nothing but cliches. Text things like move the goalpost. Something's a political football. Sweep under the rug. Think outside the box. Push the envelope. Take the foot off the pedal. Pump the brakes. Throw the baby out with the back bath water. You know, everybody's a rock star of something or other. Um, And when I was in politics, I would always tell my communications people, I never want to say that something is the backbone of something or small businesses are the lifeblood of our community or, you know, immigrants are the fabric. I mean, I love small businesses and immigrants, don't get me wrong, but these cliches really get on my nerves. So, Diego, I want to ask you, do you have a least favorite cliche?
3: Uh, Have you ever been to a local show? Yes. Yeah. You know, there's a point after the first few songs where they go... How's everyone doing tonight? And yeah. everyone, Yeah. It's not like I don't dislike it. Uh, I've been in that position before. Um, I just feel like they like when when I'm on stage, I'm a musician myself.
0: Oh, what do you play?
3: Uh, I play bass, uh, oh, guitar.
0: Cool.
3: Um, I'm in my band, uh, Tina Town, her band. Um, and I also do my own music. I play my own music either uh, by myself or with uh, four higher musicians. Wow. Sometimes. So that's
0: really so, yes, interesting. Yes, I do. Huh. Um, the yeah you know and you know what's even more annoying like how's everyone doing tonight or and then they're like I can't hear you and then yeah. everyone has to get louder
3: <laughs> yeah and it's it, it's like I don't know I feel like there's like you're performing you're performing still and that's just taking a break from that to like make sure like like you have an audience I Maybe, I, I don't yeah. necessarily t- like say jokes on stage but I do say something like oh the, like like go into a little. Little, a little uh, monologue, yeah, a little you know? spiel
0: about something. Just and keep some, it interesting. Sometimes yeah. it's just sort of like when you blank on what you want to say. Sometimes the cliche just comes in.
3: Yeah, I, I've been guilty of that. So <laughs> I, have,
0: I have a, I have a goal myself. I'm going to move my own goalpost, <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to have an intention to try to not use cliches. I'm going to see how okay. it goes. I'll see if I can do it because they're such a part of our conversation, especially in politics, especially in media. Uh, one word that people seem to use a lot, but I don't know if anyone actually knows what it means, is "preternaturally." You'll see, you'll you'll hear people like spew that word. Uh, but listeners, I want to know what your least favorite cliche is. So, at the end of the show, and I promise I'm going to get to you this time. I'm so sorry I didn't get to the calls last week. The number is eight hundred eight four eight W A B C eight 848-9222. I want to know what your least favorite cliche is. But first, we're going to have some fun with my first guest. His name is Ken Lovett. He uh, is now at I-Corps Strategies, which is a national consulting firm that aims to better connect businesses and institutions with the communities that they serve. Uh, before that, he was a reporter for many, many years. So Ken, welcome to Cut to the Chase. Thank you. It's good to be here. I have to
2: say two quick things. One, thank you for the Springsteen introduction. As a guy who's seen him 59 times and counting. That was was for you, by the way.
0: I did it on purpose.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, my least favorite cliche, and having covered uh, politics for nearly three decades, I hate the word historic unless it's truly historic.
0: And how often is anything that they say historic actually historic?
2: Exactly. You know, uh, uh, cafeteria funding or some kind of local (laughs) construction. It's just not historic to me.
0: You know, Berlin Wall coming down? Okay, I'll give it to you. Exactly. So, in 25 years of covering state government, what governors did you cover?
2: I covered Mario Cuomo toward the end, Uh I covered George Pataki all three terms. Elliot Spitzer, all 16 months, mm-hmm. David David Patterson, and then Andrew Cuomo. Wow. Okay. And I covered Kathy Hochul as a lieutenant governor, but not as governor.
0: All right. We'll count that. So that's six people who either were or became governor. And I'm, I'm always fascinated by the personalities of powerful people. Did their personalities have an impact on how budget time was done?
2: Well, that's a good question. I'd say yes. A hundred percent. You know, Andrew Cuomo was a force of nature. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Um, You know, I I think it's fair to say the legislature, a lot of people, not all, a lot of people in the legislature despised him. But they respected his authority uh, and and the strength of the executive in the budget process, Mm -hmm. even when they were complaining. And I think you're hearing it more and more now Uh, Kathy Hochul came in trying to be the uncomo and said, I'm going to work with them. It's going to be collaborative. Uh, And the legislature doesn't really respond to that. If they need to uh, go after you, they're going to go after you. And we saw that in this case, um, the amount of popping off, you know, Kathy Hochul, if you want to say is a historic governor, right? First uh, woman governor mm-hmm. elected to office yep. in New York. I mean, that's history. Yep. But they there was really very little honeymoon period, and the amount of sniping at her during the budget process really surprised me. And so, uh, yeah, no, I think I think uh, look, Elliot Spitzer early on, uh, he, you know, his, he was a self proclaimed steamroller. Yeah. And it really worked uh for a few short months and then he burned all his bridges, which is why he wasn't able to keep his job. You know, the legislature when you have a particularly strong governor likes to gripe a lot, but um they're afraid. And you know, they don't go after them. You know, it's the old well, I don't want to use the cliche of uh, <laughs> not going after the king unless you can, you know, kill him, but that's yeah. what it
0: is. That's an absolute cliche in- for this moment
2: so when Spitzer was vulnerable they quickly pounced and, and he couldn't survive what he probably could have had he had a few friends we saw the same with Andrew Cuomo he had uh you know for 10 years uh they 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 cowered in a lot of ways and even though they griped about it privately but in the end when they felt he was vulnerable they pounced here they've been pouncing a lot right they've from been the beginning pouncing a lot right out of the gate
0: I can't tell you how many times i've heard some version of say what you want about Andrew Cuomo, but dot, 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 you know, fill in the blank, whatever. He got stuff done. He got a deal done. You knew who was in charge. Uh, And I wonder, I don't know if anyone's having another cliche, buyer's remorse. See how often they come up. Um, But maybe. I
2: don't know if there's buyer's remorse as much as you're never going to make the legislature happy.
0: (laughs) Maybe that's (laughs) what it is, no matter what.
2: Uh, I mean, they hated Cuomo. They hated Cuomo. They hated Cuomo. And now even those who hate him will say to me. You know, I always hated Andrew Cuomo, but at least he could get stuff done. He can close. Yeah. Um, you know, they'll work with you until they you your interests don't align right, you know, the right way. And then they will, you know, jettison you. In the case of Cuomo, I think he was better at this point of cutting deals um privately and and using the carrot and stick approach with the lawmakers and with the advocates and the unions and and everyone else. Um I think that's something you're probably going to see the governor reevaluate. Uh, you, can, you don't have to be as out there, outwardly aggressive as the governor was, but I think you have to, uh, you know, show a little bit of the stick to go after them.
0: Yeah, and it's not easy. It's, it's easy for us, you know, from the cheap seats to say what people should and should, be, should not be doing. But I just want to remind everyone, having been in politics myself, it's not as easy as it looks. But Ken Lovett, I want to play you a clip of something that Kathy Hochul said when she announced that there was a a deal on the horizon. Play cut two, please. And here we go. Nope. That's Eminem. He's going to come next. (laughs) (laughs) He's not afraid. And I know this
4: budget process has taken a little extra time, but our commitment to the future of New York was driving this. And I believe today we'll be able to unveil Uh, the concepts of a framework that will reveal that what was important is not a race to a deadline, but a race to the right results.
0: So, Ken, love it. Uh, you've covered you've covered Albany for 25 years. I want to tease out a couple of things here. First, she calls it the concept of a framework. Does that mean it's a deal?
2: It meant they were close, and I think over the weekend they're pretty much there there were a couple of outstanding issues in terms of language how you craft it you know again cliche but i'm going to avoid it um but until you see how the bills are written um you know that that's where the that's where it counts so a lot of times you have a, an agreement on concept but you got to get the right language that satisfies everyone from what i hear they're pretty much there now um, they haven't started printing bills as of this afternoon because not everything's hammered down. The assembly Democrats are going to meet to discuss the final points tonight. And uh, if if all goes as expected, they could start passing bills as soon as tomorrow, but they expect to do it early this week and finish it, you know, a month late, but it'll be done.
0: So Kathy Hochul has said recently that her relationship with, Uh, Majority Leader of the Senate Andrea Stewart-Cousins and Assembly Speaker Carl Hastie. She says that their relationship is, quote, stronger than you can possibly believe, end quote. Uh, Was it odd that they weren't there when she made the announcement on Thursday night? And was it odd that it seemed their comments were terse at best when she really said very kind and generous things about them at that announcement? Is there is there anything to read in there?
2: I mean, I I, I don't know if I'd say it's chummy, but I don't know how much I'd read into it. You know, uh, Andrew Cuomo, the last few, did a press conference on his own. He didn't necessarily have the legislative leaders. I've seen it done both ways. But after a hard-fought negotiation, it's not always, you know, kumbaya, they stand together. From what I'm told from people on all sides, the relationship is fine. It's not – as contentious as people might think but but also there's no fear either from mm-hmm. the legislative side of things,
1: mm-hmm. so
2: you know w- one thing is someone said to me, and, and I thought it was an interesting point, as I said earlier, you've seen more rank and file lawmakers popping off about the governor, but you haven 't seen the legislative leaders telling them to pipe down,
0: yes. and we
2: have seen that at a fear that not so much to silence them, but hey, these are critical times in the negotiations. You can't go popping off because it could set us back and we want to get this done. We did not see that this year. You know, people just were going off at will in both houses and and, and amazingly um, from the same party. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the Democrats are very split right now in the direction the state should be taken. And that's where the governor finds herself. You know, Andrew Cuomo for most of it and Elliot Spitzer and George Pataki before him and Mario Cuomo, they dealt with a split legislature, Republican Senate. And a democratic uh, uh, and a democratic assembly. Cuomo had a, 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 a joint one, uh, Democrats on both houses for a couple, of, you know, maybe the last couple of years. But, but it, it, in some ways, it's easier to govern that way because you can play the houses off each other and strike deals.
0: That's exactly but here, right.
2: Within the Democratic Party. You have the progressives who really feel emboldened, and, and you know they're the hard left, and they're really pushing, and they're out there, and they're loud, and they're all over social media. You have people, particularly from the suburbs and, and upstate Democrats, who don't want to go as far on, on a lot of key issues mm-hmm. and who recognize other issues like bail reform, how that plays in their districts. And so they're not only split within the conferences, but the governor is more of a moderate uh, uh, leader. And so she's being pushed and pulled all directions as well.
0: So I'm Laura Curran. You're listening to Cut to the Chase. I'm speaking with Ken Lovett, who has covered Albany for a quarter century. Uh, you talked about bail reform, and she, the governor, really wanted to to reform the reform more than it had already been reformed. Uh, and One piece that I thought was really interesting, and and I'm hoping you can kind of untangle this for our listeners. It's hard to describe exactly what happened with bail reform vis-a-vis the judge's role. Least restrictive versus dangerousness. Um, New Yorkers, not everyone's going to be steeped in this arcane terminology. What does this actually mean?
2: So the least restrictive is... They agreed to eliminate a provision that in order to impose bail, you had to use the least uh, uh, restrictive provision. So what that means is really as long as the person's going to show up, it shouldn't matter. You shouldn't set bail. And the feeling was that a lot of people were getting out, um, and I don't know the numbers on that. I don't even think they know really the really solid numbers on that. But the perception, which in politics is often yes. even more important than the reality,
0: yeah.
2: uh, the perception is that all these people are, you know, committing crimes, getting back on the streets only to commit more crimes.
0: Right.
2: Um, you know, those who favor the bail reforms that were first passed a few years ago say that the numbers don't back it up. Others say that, you know, they're seeing more crime and thus uh, they're blaming bail reform. The Republicans Especially in the suburbs and upstate, have certainly used it to their advantage. We saw it this past election cycle. Yeah. So, um, there since the bail reform law passed, and that was under Cuomo, um, you've seen almost every year now, three years in a row, a push for reforms, and they don't go far enough. And and what the governor is going to suffer from is what she suffered from last year, which is what um, you know other uh, the, the the previous governor had suffered from, which is the far left is going to say it goes too far. The, the right is going to say it doesn't go far enough. So she's not even going to get credit for it in all likelihood.
0: Yes, exactly. Uh, interesting. So, you know, there's another thing having to do with this bail reform issue that I thought really interesting, and it didn't seem to get a lot of attention. So it was Ronald that Daniel says the GOP. Avoided- it said that the five DAs in New York City from the five boroughs had called on state lawmakers to improve discovery laws. Uh, that they're so the, the new, you know, with rebel reform, with that whole raft of reform was changes in discovery that made it very onerous for prosecutors uh, g- getting all of the information. It led to many cases getting dismissed and uh, also leading to a lot of line assistants leaving the profession or at least going to another f- kind of law profession. Um, then at the last minute, they retracted this request. Uh, saying, well, it won't make a difference in public safety, and we'll just take funding instead. And then the whole thing of discovery was just gone from the budget. What did you make of that? And, I, and I'm and i wondering why that didn't get more attention.
2: I, I, why it didn't get more attention, I can't answer. But I, I was taken by surprise. I also thought it really left the governor hanging out there. You know, yeah. she was the one who brought it up late in the negotiations. You know, they thought they had settled on a bail reform deal. Then all of a sudden discovery became an issue. And she was doing that. On she knew that a lot of people weren't going to be happy with the uh, bail reforms overall. So she wanted to give something more on, on discovery, which to me may be a more important issue even than bail reform. I think so. In, in this case, as you said, people are getting out because they they can't do this timely enough. It's just... You know defense attorneys are are learning how to you know put in more paperwork and just making it more difficult to to meet the deadlines so for the d a s not even privately, but to put out a statement saying, "No, never mind, I thought that really left the governor hanging out to dry yeah. and it 's really the second time we've seen that when she um And it wasn't the DAs in this case, but when she nominated Hector LaSalle to be her uh, Court of Appeals uh, justice, the day she – chief judge – the day she announced it, the union, uh, Mario Salento, the head of the New York AFL-CIO, came out and trashed it. And I was just really surprised that there was no kind of talks behind the scenes. Now, a lot of people feel the governor should have rolled that particular – announcement out better in terms of, uh, you know, doing the legwork behind the scenes, talking to the unions, talking to the lawmakers who had already expressed uh, reservations, uh, not even reservations, outright opposition to this appointment. Um, But they feel she didn't do that soon enough. And and it was just really surprising. But for the prosecutors to do it so late in the process was really head scratching. And to, to me, it was almost like a public embarrassment to the governor only because she was fighting for them. That's right. She was the one pushing it. It's not like the legislature wanted to do it. So she brought it up hoping to get something done, and, for, and then they abandoned her. In that,
0: Yeah, I, I thought that was, that was a – to use a cliche, you know, they really uh, put the rug out from under her. Mm. Uh, so let's talk about cannabis. I think I have you for two more minutes. Uh, so a lot of the emphasis in this budget conversation has been about what penalties should illegal pot shops get. Whereas, in my opinion, the emphasis should have been, or the emphasis should be on, why is it taking so yeah. long to let legit businesses get legit licenses so they can run legit stores instead of these, you know, 1,400 stores that don't have to pay taxes, you don't know what kind of product you're getting. It seemed like misplaced energy if you're going to be mm-hmm. dealing with cannabis.
2: Honestly, I'll, I'll see your statement, but I'll raise it, okay. <laughs> which, is, which is I don't understand why it is so hard for them to crack down on illegal stores. Um, you know, the whole idea was of, uh, behind the cannabis law was to not only make it legal in New York, but to also make it that those who are going to be running the stores, owning the stores, are people who suffered from the draconian drug laws uh, over, the, over the past few decades. Mm-hmm. And so all these stores, while the state has kind of, you know, botched the rollout of all these new uh, these new uh, cannabis stores, these other, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of stores have popped up, particularly across New York City, yeah. on almost every corner.
1: Six and
0: times why, as many, six times as many of those as there are Starbucks in the five boroughs. Yeah, and why
2: you need special legislation to crack down on an illegal store selling yeah, a product? Right. You know, if I if I opened a store and started selling liquor, you can believe the state would shut me down in a second.
0: Yeah. So, so I don't
2: get why this is an issue
0: even. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And meanwhile, what are there, three or four legitimate businesses operating in New York City and a, and a couple upstate? Uh, I don't know what the heck is going on there. But Ken, love it. I want to thank you so much uh, for coming on. Nice to talk to you. And I hope to talk to you soon. That sounds good. Thanks for having me. Be well. All right, take care. So, listeners, stay tuned. We're going to talk to Tom Kenneth, who would have been a DA in Manhattan if Manhattan was Republican, which it not which it's not. We're also getting some good calls about your least favorite clichés. Call us at
1: 848. It's 800-848-WNYC. <laughs>
3: Laura
1: Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC.
0: Hello, everyone. So I gave you the wrong number. My bad. It's 800-848-WABC. And I want to hear your least favorite cliche. We already have some folks on the line. Hang on. I'm going to get to you in a little bit. Stay tuned. But first, in the metaverse of infinite variations of what's happening here on regular old Earth The Manhattan D.A. is a Republican. Instead of D.A. Alvin Bragg, we have D.A. Tom Kenneth, who ran here on Earth as the Republican candidate against Bragg in 2021. And on this plane of reality, he's joining us on Cut to the Chase. Tom, welcome.
5: Hey, Laura. How are you?
0: I'm great. It's good to talk to you. So,
5: yeah, you too.
0: Dems outnumber Republicans in Manhattan about eight to one, and the results – For the election, your election in 2021, we're pretty much in line with that—about 83% to 16%. Uh, Alvin Bragg squeaked out in a primary versus eight opponents, which tells you how excited the the Democrats were to run in this. And the last Republican elected DA in Manhattan was in 1937. So, why did you decide to run?
5: I I decided to run. I've been practicing in the criminal justice system in New York for essentially my whole career for, for you know, over 20 years. Um, you know, I'd never seen anything like this. Uh, you know, I, I, started as a prosecutor at a time where it was just conventional wisdom that prosecutors prosecuted and defense attorneys defended. Uh, and then I went over to the defense side, um, because I believe that every defendant deserves a, uh, a zealous defense, right? That's our constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, What I had never seen before was a situation where you had, you know, eight candidates running in the Democratic field who were all essentially, you know, vying to out crazy each other Hmm. and, you know, outdo each other as far as who could go the furthest in promising not to enforce the law, not to prosecute crime, not to hold people accountable. Uh, You know, I I just – To me, uh, that was uh, intolerable. A lot of other adjectives I can come up with. Um, And, you know, I I had no delusions about what the, uh, you know, what what the the challenges would be. But I felt that someone had to get up there and present a counter-narrative.
0: Yeah. Well, that's what democracy is all about. And we did see Republicans make gains in, and I've said this a million times, make gains in all 62 counties in New York State including Manhattan. So, uh, I mean, you're now, you're a founding partner of your law firm, of Razor & Kenneth Law Firm in Manhattan, with a, a Long Island office also. Your life, I'm sure, is very comfortable, and uh, I'm not going to say easy, but not, perhaps not the same kind of stress as running for office. Would you consider running again for something?
5: You know, I, I've been asked that question a lot, um, and you know, my my answer, which I guess is much of an answer, is never say never. Um, you know, I, I think it would depend on the circumstances. Yeah. It, it, it's it's very it's very challenging running in Manhattan. I have no regrets, and and I went in with eyes wide open. Um, but you know, in in addition to the challenges you face, just with, with voter registration, which of course is overwhelming. Um, it is very difficult for Republicans in New York City. I learned this the hard way um, to, you know, get support even among, you know, the Republican conservative, uh, you know, roots. Huh, um, interesting. Yeah. And, and you know, it, and, the you know, I think a lot of it is people just say, hey, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be successful. So I'm not going to give you my support or we're not, even though we may be, you know, it may be a conservative outlet you know, we're not going to cover the race because we just don't think it's practical. Um, And I think that's a disservice because, you know, look, you have to start somewhere, right? right? And, you know, when something like, you know, law and order is at stake, and I made this point there in the campaign. I mean, you can go back thousands of years; show me any society that has ever endured in the absence of law and order it doesn't mm-hmm. exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there there are times we have to stand on principle and say, "Hey, look, you know, we may not win this time, but at least we'll we'll raise awareness," as the other side likes to say these days, um, and, and start building towards maybe when we will be able to compete in New York City, as uh, sadly as things get worse and worse.
0: Yeah, that's true. Uh, And I I can imagine, you know, when something, you know, I having been in elected office and having run for office, you know, you got to raise money. You got to call people. You got to make your pitch. And so I think what would be very frustrating are are people who are sympathetic with you and agree with your politics and would like to see you succeed, uh, but they're not going to give you money because I guess the donor class feels, well, our resources would be better spent elsewhere. We don't have infinite resources, so we're going to focus on what can actually, who can actually win. Um, But it's almost like a a chicken and egg thing. If you don't get the resources, you're not going to be competitive, right?
5: Yeah, well, absolutely. And you know what, and those people, you know, the ones, that the the, the fat cats, if you will, that could really do something, you know, it it winds up, they they hurt you in two ways. One, they hurt you because they can't, they won't get, they don't give you money. Uh, two, you know, when you get into the you know billionaire class, you know it, it, it's like a club, and they're all looking. At, you know, they're 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 very competitive with each other. Meanwhile, look, if I had billions of dollars, I wouldn't be competitive with anyone. i <laughs> a happy life somewhere, right? You they know what? Are. Rich
0: people yeah. are just like us. You know, they have the same <laughs> insecurities. They just have nicer stuff.
5: <laughs> uh, apparently, I'll let you know when I become rich. Yeah, so you. But, but you know, so so the question you would get, you know, when you go in and you make a pitch to, let's say, a conservative-minded, you know. Billionaire or multi-multi millionaires. Well, what's so and so doing for you? You know, and then you. Well, uh, oh yeah. Well, then what? You know. Yeah. And, and I'm I'm sure you you've been there. Yeah, after, I had
0: one know. donor who you know I went up to see him, and he's like, "Who's your biggest donor?" <laughs> and then oh, he yeah. no, he, uh, he, he upped the ante a little bit.
5: <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. And I mean, I you know, I, I and then you know, I, I would say this, I said, "Look, you know, well, if so and so gives you money, then I'll come support you." I'm like, let's put a little look. Like, it's like being in combat saying you got to take this hill and, uh, well, I'll see if you make it halfway up. Then I'll come and join you. You know, it, right. does, it doesn't work. I mean, but look, at the end of the day, you know, it, it's not for me to tell anybody else, you know, what to do with their money. And I don't want to sound, you know, uh, ungrateful either because, frankly, we had a lot of, you know, don't, uh, smaller donors. Yeah. And, and some bigger that, that really did step up. And I had a great cadre of volunteers, most of which were Democrats, by the way, but they, mm. but they were re- because it's Manhattan, but they, they, they saw what was at stake and they really perceived uh, the race. And uh, look, you know, we didn't have much, but I will say, and pat pat myself or more my team a little bit on the back, you know, we beat Curtis Lewa by 5,000 votes in Manhattan. Ah. We, were, we were one of the only in history, one of the only down ballot candidates to ever beat the top of the ticket. Of course,
0: it's pretty good. Warhead
5: went in our face because instead of riding on coattails from the top of our ticket. Yeah. And I like Curtis. He's phenomenal. And, and he was very, uh, you know, he was he, W.A.B.C.
0: guy for big, big time. I, I,
5: I have not a bad word to say about Curtis, but my, my, I'm, all, I'm only saying that, you know, in, in the sense that, look, there, there were people in Manhattan who got it and perceived it. And maybe, you know, if, if we had the resources where we could. To do the things that you know you need to do to win a race, you know, direct mailing,
0: mm-hmm. television and so forth. Takes money.
5: Maybe maybe we could have pulled more uh, from the middle into the race. But, you know, it, it is very difficult to do that without that kind of financing.
0: So, Tom, I have you for about one more minute, but I do want to let our listeners know that you are a major in the Army National Guard and you're an Iraq War veteran. And I'm seeing a really I talked about this last week on the show. There's a really interesting group of young veterans who are running and who are winning. I'm thinking on the I was talking the other last week about Nancy Mace on the Republican side, representative down in South Carolina, and Pat Ryan here in New York, who was just elected to Congress. What is it about service, serving your country and then public service? And what can we do to encourage more of that?
5: Well, I, Laura, I think you said it already. I mean, the word service comes up twice in that sentence, right? And, and that's it. I mean, you have people that are used to, you know, that, that are willing to get into the fight, right? I mean, I, I, I live in Oyster Bay now, so I love to quote, you know, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, man in the arena.
0: Yeah,
5: it's great. Right. Look it up. If you
0: don't know it, look it up. It's oh, really it, good.
5: It's phenomenal, yeah. And, uh, you know, and that's what it's really all about. So, you know, you're willing to get in there and you're not going to. Say, hey what are the odds i'm going to do this because i think it's the right thing to do and then of course we can't talk about veterans in office without me represent uh acknowledging my great friend Lee Zeldin because Lee and i uh, and my law partner Stephen Razer and sadly the late Bo Biden were all in the same officers school a class uh, wow. in the army we yeah. all graduated together so i you know i, I got you know I, i've known Lee he used to work at our firm and uh he was really, you know, what kind of helped me get my name in the ring to run uh, in, in the race in Manhattan. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, obviously another uh, another great veteran who has served uh, in militarily and politically.
0: Uh, mm-hmm. Well, Tom and Kenneth, we, need, we, need to we
5: need more people to do it.
0: We need more people to do it. We need more good people in both parties to run. And Tom Kenneth, I want to thank you for your service. And I also want to thank you for running, even though it was an uphill battle. And I hope we see you again.
5: Looking forward to it, Laura. Thanks for having
0: me on. All right. And listeners, next, I we're going to be talking about uh, staying sober and social for young people in New York City and elsewhere and the challenges there. And I, we're getting a lot of calls about your f- least favorite cliches. Stay on the line. I'm going to get to you soon. 800-848-WABC. We'll be right back.
1: Laura Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC.
0: Welcome back. We got a little song for you to lead you into our third guest. And Diego is going to hit it now.
2: I'm not afraid to take a stand.
0: are not alone. Uh, that is Eminem, uh, always raw and candid about his struggles with addiction and his journey to sobriety. Uh, I'm always interested and inspired by stories about people who have overcome something difficult. And instead of just giving up or living a life of resentment or regret or defeat, you know, they use it as a fuel for something positive. And I think this is uh, something that exemplifies my next guest. Her name, is, her name is Eve Goldberg. She's the founder of Big Vision. And at first blush, her life seems great. She's co-owner of a prominent family-run diamond business on Fifth Avenue. Uh, but then her 23-year-old son Isaac dies of an overdose. Uh, as he tried himself to navigate the difficult difficult road to sobriety, so Eve, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Cut to the chase.
4: Well, thank you so much for having me. And by the way, that was the best intro you could possibly put on that Eminem song. Oh, I loved well. it. It
0: it it really, I it just it just hits me right in the heart. Uh, yep. And I, I got to think when something like this happens to you. You, your first response, especially as a mother, is regret and blaming yourself and what could I have done? How did you, how are you able to overcome that?
4: Well, let me tell you, it didn't happen overnight. Um, as a parent, you know, we think we have control over what happens with our children. We do all the right things. We send them to good schools. You know, we, we do whatever we think is right, but obviously at the end of the day you find out you don't really have all that control as much as you would like to. Mm-hmm. So when Isaac passed away, um, it'll be not, it's nine years, he's 23 years old. Wow. And he had struggled for a, a while. It wasn't, you know, it didn't just happen overnight. But when he passed away, of course I blamed myself. I said, I don't get it. You know, why me? Why does this happen to me? What did I do wrong? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I thought to myself, there are a million things I could have done differently. A million things. So I can think of everything I could have possibly done differently, but at the end of the day I have to believe that it was his time to go for whatever reason. Yeah. You know, I've never really believed in that, but I do believe that God took him for a reason. Mm. And, you know, I have a support group that I started for parents who lost children to addiction,
1: Mm.
4: and we all, it's a very um, safe place where we sit and we talk about these things, and we all say the same thing. Like, we blame ourselves, and we've got it. You can't help it. When something goes wrong with any child, you always think that, you know, you blame the parents, but... You know, it's it's a very, very tough thing to get through. And, to, you know, I still have moments where I'm like, oh, my God, seriously, I could have done something differently. But I can't I can't allow myself to go there.
0: And you've taken that energy and you've turned it into something positive. Uh, Big Vision, you started in 2015, so eight years mm-hmm. ago, uh, as a way to help young adults navigate sobriety. What is the biggest challenge that you're finding among this group of young adults?
4: Uh, the biggest challenge, I mean, there's so many challenges. There's the shame and the stigma that they feel. Shame is the big one. You know, um, yeah. it's, it's gotten better since Isaac was alive. When Isaac was alive, there was no one talking about this. When Isaac was struggling, he was so ashamed to tell people that, you know, he had these struggles. Um, today, you have a lot of celebrities who are talking about it. You have, you know, there's more discussion. You can't open a paper today without some article about addiction.
0: Mm-hmm. and it's Fentanyl yours. now, yeah.
4: It's fentanyl. I mean, it's out there more. So I think that helps. But I think the shame for so many of these young adults is really, it, it's there. And that's really one of the things that we really fight to, to erase that shame and that stigma, because it's still a stigma. And, um, you know, it's just difficult for them to find ways, like for Isaac, it was just tough for him to find ways to have fun, to live his life again, just without substances, because he was so used to that life. Mm. And so it's kind of teaching them, what we talk about it, it's on our website, is a recovery lifestyle, where we show them all the elements that they have to put together in their life in order to live this recovery life. So it's, just, it's not just about not picking up the drink or the drugs it's so much more than that and that's really you know what we're what what they're learning especially when they come to our events
0: and young people like all human beings they want to be social they want to date they want to meet people or they want to go out and have fun with their friends but so many activities for young people are about drinking you know there's yeah. brunch with the mimosas there's going out to the bar there's going to the game and getting beers or what or drugs you know of course forget drugs on top of it um so are you are you supplying for these young people alternatives to get together in a social yeah. situation where they can have all the benefits of having fun and flirting and all the stuff that young people like to do without the the cultural norms of drinking or smoking?
4: If you saw me, I'm shaking my head at everything that you just said. So we just had it. you know, so what we do is we do sober activities and events for young adults in recovery. Today, for instance, I just came back from um, a wellness event that we did. This one was specifically for women, and it was um, yoga, meditation. Mm. We did acupressure. We did tarot card reading. We made um, bracelets with, like, messages of hope on them, and it was, you know, this amazing. And then we had non-alcoholic drinks there as well. So this is, you know, part, it's just showing that, yeah, you can do all this stuff and just do it without substances. And one of the people there today who is um, doing the bracelets, she said, you know what? I got to tell you, when I was drinking, she said I was throwing up in alleyways. She goes, let me just say, that's not cool. It's cool to be sober. So it's about teaching people that it's cool to know what you're doing, to be aware, not to look. I mean it's it's not a good look for anybody to be drunk or wasted, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot cooler to not drink. For instance, we're doing this next weekend we're doing something, a silver party. It's called Sands Bar, and we do this every year in New York. It's somebody from Austin, Texas, who started a silver bar there and we do this great so this great event with uh, silver bartenders and you know, we'll probably have 100, hundred, hundred and fifty people there. And, you know, and last year we did it and I saw people literally like waiting on lines for drinks. And I said, everybody's so patient waiting Mm. on this line. And I realized that they're not like jonesing for a drink. Mm. It's a non-alcoholic drink. So they're just looking for, you know, they're waiting patiently on lines, chatting with the people around them, you know. So, yeah, that's it's all about showing people that it's cool to not use substances.
0: It's also nice to not wake up with a hangover. Where can people find out about these events?
4: So our website is bigvision.nyc. Um, it's uh, on, we're on Instagram. We post, you know, constantly, and we post all our events there. But if you go to the website, it's bigvision.nyc. Um, all the events are on there. Um, and we actually, what's really exciting, after all this time, we purchased a space in Midtown Manhattan, which is going to be our a clubhouse. It's going to be a place where we can actually house and have all these sober events, yoga, we have medication, uh, we have a ping pong table, pool table. We have outdoor space. We're going to do great parties there and just a safe place for young adults to come and hang out and do whatever they want, just with no triggers, no substances. And so we're starting construction soon. We'll be done by the end of the year. And this was always my dream from day one was to actually have a place like this. And I can't believe it's actually happening, but it is. And it's really, really exciting. It's going to be the first of its time in New York City.
0: Eve Goldberg of Big Vision, thank you so much on coming on Cut to the Chase. And, uh, you know, people want to learn more, go to bigvision.nyc. And you can also look up Eve's op-ed about the wafting cannabis everywhere and the pressure that that puts on folks. Eve, I want to thank you so much, and thank you for your wonderful work for people.
4: Thank you, and thank you so much for having me and giving me this opportunity. I really appreciate
0: it. It was great to talk to you. And listeners, I'm coming back. With your least favorite cliches, hold on, Judith, Robert, Julie, Hailstorm, Joe, Rick, and Edward, I'm coming for you next here on WABC. Laura Curran joining us live.
1: It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC.
0: Okay, friends, what's your least favorite cliche? Mine is X is the backbone of Y. X is the lifeblood of Y. X is the fabric of Y. Okay, we got a bunch of people. Give us a call, 800-848-WABC. We're going to go to Judith. Real quick, what's your least favorite cliche, Judith?
4: Hi, Laura. How many times have you heard people say this? To tell you the truth, and you and you're wondering like well, well, have you been lying to me till now, and now you tell me the truth, like you know you can't know if you're telling you the truth of the lies,
0: you know that's, that's a good it. one. My husband always says, I always hear him on the phone, you know, he's working from home uh, I, he's like I, 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 I gotta be honest with you. like, wait a minute, you haven't been honest all the other times. That's a good one. Thank you, you Judith. Go. uh Robert, on line two, what do you what do you got?
4: Hi, Patricia. Uh, I've got two of them uh, at the end of the day. And that being said, yeah. now both of these are normally often used as qualifiers that when you put together what's being said before and after them in the middle of a statement, it makes what they're
0: saying meaningless. Yeah, that being said, what does that even mean? It, it has no meaning. It's almost like it's a filler, like saying um or like. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I think that started in Britain and it's come over here and I guess it's like, and to summarize, maybe that's what it means. Well, Robert, thank you very much for the call. And now we're going to Julie on line three in New Jersey. (laughs) Hi, um, it's all good, which is kind of the new cliche, I think. (laughs) Yeah, it, it is. And usually it means it's sort of like the new it's fine, like it's actually not all good. Right. Very often. It's really not great. So I think it's overused improperly. Yeah. And any more? Um, Also, um, no problem, which I'm not exactly sure if that's a cliche, but um, it's an overused phrase. Yeah. And no worries. I think no worries has come to us from Australia. That's another one. Right. Thank you, Julie. By the way, that's my daughter's name. So I like you already. All right. Hailstorm. Love your name. Line four. What do you got?
1: You know me. I'm from Freeport. How you
0: doing? Hey, hello. I like your code name.
1: I I, I want to compliment you on what you're doing. And Freeport and Baldwin is really bouncing back and we're going up. Okay. Clichés.
0: Thank you. you. Yeah. This is a positive cliché. Okay.
1: Running a business. Yeah. Well, Winking at a girl in the door. Let me, I got to go to the, I got, oh, sorry, I got it written down.
0: All right. Okay. Go get your notes.
1: Running a business without advertising is like winking at a girl in the dark. You know what you're doing, but she doesn't.
0: I, I, you know what? I never heard that. So I don't even think it's a cliche. I think it is an analogy and I like it. I like analogies and I thank you for calling. Uh, Joe, NYC, what do you got for me?
1: Hi there, <clears throat> Laura. Thank you for mentioning one thing. You know, before, uh, after the break, mm-hmm. you, uh, oh, no, I'm sorry, just before the break, you mm-hmm. know, you mentioned the names of uh, the callers uh, coming up. I did. Although they weren't, in, you know, uh, uh, listed uh, uh, accordingly, chronologically or uh, nominally whatever just randomly Uh, yeah just randomly right you did a great job of that i'm grateful thank you because you know what let me
0: tell you why that's important to me joe because every single person listening to wabc listening to this radio show i am grateful for and i value and that's why i like to spend a little bit of time talking to people so joe go ahead
1: Get ready. I'm ready right? uh, with the notes and everything else. Uh, that gentleman, uh, he wasn't ready. You know? No, you're he had ready. To pick up the notes later. Now, I counted sixty-seven times. Once, when a guest celebrity, a guest, I forgot the name. You know, uh, on uh, 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 in an interview with uh, uh, Frank Marano. uh uh-huh. Sixty-seven times. I because I'm so fed up with the phrase you know some oh. overuse it so dramatically that they could use it like uh every other word practically. You
0: yes. Know? I, or to, I, you just said
1: it. Did you to to it it? on you my nerves. It. So I counted so I counted 67 times in a 10-minute it's uh, a conversation uh, between uh, uh, Frank Murano and that uh, guest who was a celebrity. Another thing is, by the way, feel badly.
0: I feel badly. Uh, you
1: know, you walk badly. Uh, you know, it's, you run badly.
0: But yeah, you do, I feel, you feel badly bad. is like my my fingers don't work properly for feeling. You, you, I feel bad would be the correct one.
1: One last one, one last quick one. Okay, is of course when you ask somebody how. How are you? You know, I when they ask me, I say I'm okay. I never respond with good or well because I'm not sure whether they mean my mental Joe, constitution Joe. or they mean my health.
0: Joe, I think you should say I'm great because you are great, and I thank you for calling. And now we're going to go to Rick. What do you have, uh, Rick? You
4: probably- you probably don't hear this as much as I do because I debate the global warming hypothesis. Ah. But I always hear this I always hear this from the alarmists. They say 97 percent of climate scientists agree, but they don't know what that means. And if you ask them, what do they agree to? They get stuck. They don't know what to say.
0: That's a good point. And there's many nuances in this argument. So they could be agreeing on all different kinds of things. Thank you. And I think we have time for one more. And that's Edward Chicago. Lauren, thank you.
2: Yeah. Hello. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Edward from Chicago. uh, Soon to be done with Blue Cross Blue Shield because I'll be moving to Tampa. Nice selection on the topics. non-political. My phrase is going to be, hey, boss. They always say that a lot. I ignore it, but (laughs) everybody's boss.
0: Yeah. Although if you want to call me boss, I won't mind. Definitely. Thanks, Edward. All right. That'll do it for this episode of Cut to the Chase. We'll be back next week. And I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you again. And next, we've got Positively Ernie and Patricia for some positivity in your life. Thank you for listening. Bye.